Thank you for downloading this podcast from Pardes, North America. This episode of the Parsha podcast features David Bernstein and Rabbi Michael Hen on Parshat Kitavo. For the latest episode of the Parsha podcast, please visit elmod.pardes.org. And now, here is David Bernstein and Rabbi Michael Hen. Welcome everyone to the Pardis Parsha podcast. This is Michael Hatton and David Bernstein. And we are going to be discussing Parshat Kitavo. We have been following the story of the preparations of the people of Israel to enter the land. Moshe has been offering encouragement and caution concerning the challenges that lie ahead. And our Parsha actually begins with a joyous ritual, perhaps one of the most joyous rituals, which is the presentation of the Bikurim, the first fruits. When the people of Israel enter the land and they begin to grow crops in the land, so the Torah tells us that they are to present the first fruits at the temple. The first fruits here means the seven species, wheat, barley, grapes, pomegranates, figs, dates, and olives. And it's a very joyous procession, which is alluded to in the Torah and spoken of more fully in the Mishnah in Tractate Bikurim. But what's absolutely fascinating is that part of this presentation is actually a declaration as well, where the presenter remembers the oppression in Egypt, the exodus from Egypt, after crying out to God, and the entry into the land, and it's really against that backdrop of God giving us a land flowing with milk and honey, that these first fruits are presented. So that's the piece that we're looking at. And uh, David, I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on this ritual. Thank you, Michael. Um, I really have three questions about this particular Mikrabi Kurim, this declaration that the farmer makes as he or she brings his first fruits or her first fruits. It's clearly Hakarata Tov. It's clearly a, uh, uh, a, a giving of thanks to God for the first fruits. Uh, but it should be personal. I mean, it wasn't the whole nation that grew those grapes or those pomegranates or those olives. It was the farmer on his or her land. And so therefore, why isn't it said in the first person singular? Why is it said in the first person plural? My second question is, why does it go back so far in history? If this is about giving thanks for the uh, new crops, for the fruits of the land, so uh, why do you have to go back? Uh, so many years. And thirdly, why is it written as if the farmer himself or herself is the person who went through all these things? Uh, it's, it's a kind of a, a mishmash of history. Uh, and as a student of history, that bothers me. Uh, there's a chronology to history. And I, I was not there as a farmer in Egypt. Um, in fact, None of these people were in Egypt, well, I shouldn't say, none of them over the age of 20 were in Egypt, because this is the, the last book, Deuteronomy, Sefer Dvarim, 
uh, and they're about to enter the land, and the 40 years of uh, the desert uh, has taken the lives of all of those adults who were in Egypt. Um, so, so first of all, um, I think to answer the first question, why is it not personal? I think that uh, the celebration of the first fruits is like many celebrations in Judaism. It's not viewed only as a personal achievement. So, for example, a wedding or brit milah uh, are celebrated as national celebrations, not only personal celebrations. You know, we the most common song sung at a Jewish wed wedding is Odi Shama Barehu Yerushalayim Kol Sason Kol Simcha Kol Chatan Kol Kala. That you know, one day will be heard again. You know, the sound of joy at the wedding of a bride and groom uh, in. Uh, uh, in Jerusalem, in the land of Israel. And you know, what does that have to do with the couple who are sitting there in Toronto or in Los Angeles or in Antwerp uh, and are celebrating their wedding? Uh, so, you know, and so many of the blessings that are given, both at a Brit Milah as well as uh, at a wedding uh, and in Jewish celebrations in general, we view the personal not only as personal, but also as part of the national story. So that's, I think that's a really important insight, David, because, you know, many of us come from a culture that celebrates the person or the individual. And really what you're saying is there's a whole other dimension to our experience and our existence, which is, which is national. And that's being expressed in this declaration as well. Yeah, it is a community writ large, uh, as opposed, and a feeling of belonging, uh, which actually in our day is for many people sorely missing. Uh, where we are radically individuated uh, and radically, in some cases, alienated. Uh, and loneliness is a very big problem. Uh, and I think that one of the strongest features of Jewish life is the creation of community. Um, the second question I had is, why do you go back so far in history? What does the farmer's olives have to do with Yitziat Mitzrayim, the exodus from Egypt, the enslavement in Egypt, the story of our forefathers. Um, and, um, and here I think that uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a matter of appreciation that again goes beyond the personal but to the national. And it's echoed in the Haggadah uh, Shel Pesach where we say that uh, we have to view ourselves in every generation as if we left Egypt, because if our ancestors didn't leave Egypt, we'd still be slaves there. And I think that that notion uh, of, uh, of viewing our personal uh, achievements is, again, reflected in that national idea of our national history. It's never far behind us, which really leads me to the third question that I had, which is why does the farmer speak? as if the farmer was actually in Egypt, the farmer actually was taken out of Egypt. And this, I think, reflects a Jewish view of history. A Jewish view of history is different than, I think, the generally accepted Western sense of history, um, which is chronological. There's a past, there's a present, there's a future. And I think that the Jewish view of history is much closer to memory, and it's one that actually is a mishmash. Uh, it combines the past, present, and future. Uh, it doesn't delineate between them so clearly. 
Uh, and so, as I quoted from the Haggadah before, we have to view ourselves as if we're coming out of Egypt. Um, and that's exactly what this farmer is saying, that God took us out of Egypt, that God brought us to this land, even if it's many generations later. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, that past is with us. And here, um, there was a, uh, a very uh, famous American author who said, uh, the past is, uh, is not dead, uh, the past is with us. It is. The past is with us in everything we do. Our personalities were formed before the age of three. Our experiences as children very much influence who we are as adults. Every decision we make as an adult influences who we are today. Uh, the past is with us, and this is a recognition that the past is very much part of us. Uh, and certainly the exodus from Egypt is kind of like, together with the giving of Torah at Har Sinai, probably the seminal event of Jewish history that we repeat. We repeat when we read the Torah, when we read those portions from Exodus, we repeat it uh, on Pesach, and we repeat it when a farmer brings his fruits, because the past is with us. And the appreciation that we can have for our freedom, remembering our slavery, uh, actually enhances our lives. Um, so if, if I'm understanding you correctly, uh, it sounds like you're saying that history is the events when they happened and memory is what we preserve or how we preserve it. And that, of course, implies that there might be something subjective or there might be something uh, judgmental about those events as well. Um, you know, I think that um, it's a challenge sometimes to commemorate history, to decide what to preserve and what to discard and what to emphasize and what not to emphasize. And maybe the Torah is teaching us that this is also part of our challenge in terms of Jewish history. You know, I think it's a really interesting point that you said, David, that, you know, ultimately the person who is doing the declaration here is not someone that actually experienced the Exodus, but they're talking about it as if they did. And this is sort of a Haggadah specialty. Right. As you said, we see ourselves as if we left the land of Egypt, but of course we didn't physically. So we have to remember it. We do more than remember it. We reenact it. We eat the bitter herbs. We taste the salt water. Um, we, we really reenact it. You know, there's a, a Sephardi custom um, of uh, actually taking a, uh, a, a bag of matzot and putting it on your shoulder uh, at the beginning of the Seder and walking around the table and people ask, where are you coming from? And the person says, Mitzrayim, Egypt. Where are you going to? The land of Israel. And it's, it's, uh, it's really a reenactment. It's, I call it the activation of history, not just, you know, remembering history. That's a beautiful idea. I mean, I think that, that also explains why uh, in the Haggadah, we choose this declaration as the core text. It's going to be through this declaration that we will tell the story of the Exodus in spite of the fact that the story of the Exodus is right in the book of Exodus and we could have drawn from that material uh, and, so to speak, gone to the source. But maybe really what the Torah is telling us and what you're suggesting is that the challenge here is to tell or to reenact or to activate the history that we were not part of physically. And so we're choosing a text from Sefer Devarim, 
that people will be reciting who were not actually there when the Exodus took place, but they'll remember it as if they were. And they'll describe it as if they experienced it firsthand, which is a fascinating way to look at those events. Yes. Uh, parallel to that is the concept that we were all somehow at Sinai. Uh, that even though obviously we were not there, somehow our souls were somehow there. Uh, and I, I think that that's an important, uh, an important part of the way we view, traditionally, the way v Jews viewed history. Um, there's a book by uh, Professor Yosef Chaim Yerushalmi, who taught at Columbia University, called Zachor, Jewish History and Memory. And he points out that the word Zachor, uh, or the root for Zachor, Zayin Chafresh, appears 169 times in Tanakh in the Hebrew Bible, uh, which have, is... Have you counted them? I have not. I, uh, thank God I read the book, and so I was able to quote it, <laughs> but I have not counted them. Um, I believe him, though. And what does that say about the, the place of memory in Jewish life? But the important thing, I think, to remember is... Well, remember, sorry for that pun, uh, is that uh, the memory gives us roots, uh, but doesn't hold us down. Uh, I think the Jewish people have proven time and again how resilient they are. And even though we remember the slavery in Egypt, and even though we remember the destruction of the temples, and even though we remember the Shoah, uh, and of course many other tragedies, uh, the Jewish people is very resilient and is always forward-looking and optimistic and moving ahead and building. You know, after the destruction of the temple, uh, the second temple, uh, the Jews built a road to the Mishnah. Uh, after the Shoah, the Jewish people created the state of Israel. Uh, and survivors, remarkably, for the most part, uh, scarred as they were, rebuilt their lives, uh, created families, uh, earned a living. Uh, they, they did not sit wallowing in self-pity. Uh, and so our memory, in a way, energizes us uh, to be resilient and to look ahead and to look forward uh, giving us a very strong grounding and appreciating everything good that we do have. Wow, what a beautiful insight. Um, maybe for a moment we can just look at a specific phrase that uh, I think has uh, sort of entered the lexicon. Arami Oved Avi is how the declaration begins. And it's a cryptic phrase. Mm -hmm. In the Haggadah, <clears throat> for instance, the ancient rabbis understood the Aramean in question was none other than Lavan. And as the rabbis put it, Lavan bikesh la'akor et hakolan Eremia, namely Lavan, wanted to destroy our fourth father Jacob, and Jacob survived. Um, so I want to point out that it's a beautiful idea. There is only one person in the Torah who's called an Aramean, and that is Lavan. That's the good news. <laughs> the bad news is, is that uh, many of the commentaries point out that from a grammatical standpoint, the reading of the ancient rabbis is untenable. So this is sort of a grammatical point that I'll just make. Um, you know, we distinguish in grammar between what's called transitive verbs and intransitive verbs. Uh, a transitive verb has a direct object to complete the action. If I say, I hit, you have to say, what did you hit in order for that to make sense? Some verbs, though, are intransitive. They don't need an object. I ran makes perfect sense. I don't have to say anything else. Even Ezra points out that 
Oved, which is uh, translated as destroyed, is actually an intransitive verb. So Arami Oved Avi cannot possibly be translated as an Aramean wanted to destroy my father, which would be the object. So Ibn Ezra says instead, the Aramean in question is not actually Lavan, but actually it refers to Jacob himself. Jacob went to Aram. Jacob was oppressed by his father-in-law, Lavan. Eventually, Jacob and his family descend to Egypt and the rest of the story as it's told in the Torah. And for, for Ibn Ezra, the, the contrast here is the contrast between um, being poverty-stricken, being dependent as Jacob was in the house of Lavan, and then reaching the land and producing uh, the first fruits and expressing that gratitude from a place of plenty. Mm-hmm. And that's sort of the contrast that he traces here, mm-hmm. which is sort of a, a fascinating way to read it. Um, I'll just point out that Rashbam, on the other hand, views the Aramean in question to be Abraham, who did actually come from that part of the world, Abraham and Sarah. And they were the Arameans in question who wandered. Ovid here means to wander. And eventually they will produce a nation. And that nation will have a homeland. And for Rashbam, the contrast, therefore, is between homelessness and having a home. Mm. So we have these two different readings, you know, having nothing and having something, having no home and having a home. And they're both sort of like engines, I would say, for the gratitude that you were talking about earlier on a national level. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's still curious that the rabbis insist that we're talking about Lavan, who wanted to destroy our father Yaakov, when that doesn't seem to be sort of a grammatical possibility. But that's a story that the Haggadah says. I mean, I'm wondering if you have any, any thoughts on identifying Lavan as the villain, quote-unquote, in this moment, mm-hmm. um, rather than reading it some other way. Um, I actually wasn't familiar with the other readings, you know, the Ibn Ezra and the Rashbam, and uh, each one of them makes sense, and especially in light of the, uh, the act of bringing the first fruits. Uh, I think it, those two interpretations make more sense uh, than Lavan. So I wonder, um, you know, that, that, that I, I agree with you. I wonder if, you know, and I know you're the historian in the room. I wonder if, you know, in the Haggadah, the rabbis were maybe alerting us to some kind of um, paradigm of Jewish history. You can speak to this better than I can. Uh, the story of Yaakov is Yaakov had to flee. And Yaakov was welcomed by his host. And that host was Lavan. And they had a lovely relationship until it wasn't so lovely anymore. Let Yaakov eventually felt threatened and was threatened and had to flee once again for safer shores. And I wonder if... And the same story repeats itself in Egypt, where they were welcomed. Sort of on the larger scale. And, and I'm wondering if, you know, from a historian's perspective, one could say this is almost a, a microcosm of Jewish history, the Jewish experience of exile... <clears throat> that somehow follows a pattern. And maybe the rabbis are trying to alert us to that pattern by bringing Lavan into the story. Mm. Um, I know it's a simplification. It is. It is a simplification. And of course, you know, that view of history overlooks the good times that exist for hundreds of years 
in various places where Jews prospered. Um, but um, it, it does ring true, in, in, in a sense, uh, that it is paradigmatic of the Jewish situation, uh, unfortunately also in the land of Israel. In other words, the Jews are not permanently in the land of Israel. They, uh, their temples are destroyed, they are expelled, uh, then they return, then they expelled again, return. Um, so the transience, I think, is definitely a theme of Jewish history, uh, both in the land of Israel as well as in the diaspora. Wow. Thank you very much, David, for sharing your thoughts and your insights on the Parsha. And we will see you all next week. Thank you, Michael. And I'm happy to learn the Ibn Ezra and Rashbam on Arami Ovedavi. Shabbat Shalom, everyone. Shabbat Shalom. Thank you again for downloading this podcast, a production of Pardes North America. If you liked what you heard, please give us a five-star review wherever you download your podcast. Be sure to follow us on Spotify for the latest episode of the Pardes Parsha podcast.